Hey, Jordan. How are you doing? Hey, what's up? Just enjoying uh, my long weekend. You didn't post any about that online, right? Because that would be really offensive if you were no. to. No, no. I saw, I saw. I can't yeah. believe that, that that got greenlit, but. Yeah, it's like, what? I I don't know if we're, I thought maybe we were being too harsh, banning Ken from the office again. Um, I thought that was the last straw. The fact that he advised the, the Kamala's team to do that post. Mm-hmm. No one checked that with me. I don't know about you. No one, no one no. cleared that with me. No, I think he just went rogue. Uh, because Ugh. if someone tried to to run that past me, you know I would have shut it down. There's no way Extremely on Memorial offensive. Day weekend. That's yeah. just unbelievably disrespectful to Disgusting. our troops, yeah. our veterans. Yeah. So I was already, excuse my language, I was already pissed off about that. Oh God, you're mad. No, I am. And um, I was already, I was already pretty steamed about that. And then, of course, we saw yesterday Ken again. He does this every year, and I don't know mm-hmm. what we need to do to convince him that not to do this kind of stuff. But then he's getting, you know, he's reaching out to Matt Gates and all these Republicans, and he's getting them to retweet images of Lee Harvey Oswald on Memorial Day. Oh, my God. Did he, like, I, I think I saw those. He photoshopped Lee Harvey Oswald yeah. into a military outfit. I know. So it's, it's a, a form of disinformation. It's it's, it's disinformatia. It is. It is. It, it and we is. should probably be examining some possible links that he might have to. I think that's fair. The Russian um, government. Mm-hmm. And he uh, also did this. You know, it was it was an overt middle finger to the troops by photoshopping Lee Harvey Oswald into a, a marine yeah. outfit. And it's like, doesn't Ken understand that? Like, we need to get Matt Gates on board with our agenda. Mm-hmm. Like, we're trying to reach across the aisle. We're trying to be bipartisan. Never We're trying to get prove- the infrastructure bill passed without his vote. No, exactly. And it's just so you're, you know, you've already now you've alienated Matt Gates, And mm-hmm. I didn't want to have to ban Ken again, but I, st- I don't see what I other option we, we have because. Yeah. Is that the fourth ban or I, I'm actually lost track on this? I think I think it is the, f- the fourth or fifth. And quite frankly, I think this is the final straw. Yeah, I think this is definitely the one, the, probably the last straw. We got to change the. the his key card. He keeps getting into the I office. I think so. I don't know how. I don't know how that happens, but he's back. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> yeah. It was so. It was uh, you know we make it. We have a joke about this, but a couple of a couple of these people really did get clipped. They did. He emptied the clip on him. <laughs> the return of the gangster, as he put it's it. It's insane. It's insane how effective it is. Yeah. And You'd every year that he someone gets, would figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. He gets more and more high profile profile people. And so I saw I, I knew something was coming. He he tweeted the picture of the American flag and then those stupid emojis. <laughs> and it said, Happy Memorial Day, everyone. And I just like was teasing him and I said, Oh, you just posted cringe, but texted him like what what's the trap? And he goes, oh, it's just so whenever people go to my profile, I'm going to pin it. That's the first thing they see. And I was like, that, that's actually like kind of brilliant. He made his header photo, the American flag and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it was just like, that's all it took. They just went to his profile, saw the American flag, saw the tweet that said, uh, uh, happy Memorial Day. He emptied his bio of all the intercept stuff and, you know, signal number and just made it some like bland Americana <laughs> bullshit, and that's that's it. That's you can't all keep it getting took. away with it. 
I it's amazing. <laughs> He's like so subtle with it, and it just always works. And you know what? I I I, I told him. But I'll say it here. On, on Thursday, he was on Deep Dive on TYT, and I said, look, I don't think you'll ever top the Johnny Sins thing. I think that's the funniest thing yeah. like, you could possibly do, and you'll never top it. And fucking 72 hours later, he does. It's just, it's, you, you do have to hand it to him sometimes. He's a madman. <laughs> a wild man, yeah. He's still banned, but he's a madman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got to give, give credit where it's due, but he's still not, not coming. We got to take out some uh-huh. restraining orders. Need, need no, to get yeah, close yeah. to the office. Like, he still needs to understand his role here. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, obviously we haven't communicated that properly. Um, how was your Memorial Day? Did you do anything interesting or uh, did you grill anything up? Or what did you, you get up to? No, I did no no grilling. I'm not grill-pilled. Um, just kind of hung out, did All stuff. Right. What about you? Well, we don't have Memorial Day here. Our, th- our three-day weekend no, was the well, previous weekend. You should fucking celebrate it for us. <laughs> well, I did Why grill. do you hate our troops? Yeah. I did grill regardless, even though it wasn't technically like a holiday. Oh, that's like just a, to get a sign of solidarity. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I just wanted to make sure in case all my neighbors want to know that I respected the troops. I want to make sure everyone understands this. <laughs> no question. No questions left yeah, after that. I don't want to have that. I don't want this to be ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. Um, who do we have coming on the show today? Let's, let's, We've let's got Max Moran from the Revolving Door Project. Rob? Yeah. Yeah. We talked to Max. It was very good. Um, a very kind of clear-eyed assessment of the first 100 days of the Biden administration, and he thinks everything's going great, and uh, he really <laughs> likes it. Yes. <laughs> so. Stay tuned to find out if that's true or not. Yeah, stay tuned. Um, so before Max comes on, I know, you know, it's June 1st. It's actually my birthday in a couple of days, by the way. Um, that's no big deal really or anything. Important. Yeah, well, okay. Um, <laughs> but it's the, it's the beginning of Pride Month. There's, of course, the Pride Parade. We've had some pretty horrible discourse about that online for the last couple of weeks, it seems like. Yeah, not, but, not uh, touching that at all. Let's not let's not go there, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one thing I do want to mention is this fucking phenomenon that seems to, again, like every year becomes more pronounced, which is like these horrible disgusting corporations like arms manufacturing corporations raytheon and all these terrible companies basically going through the motions uh changing their their avatars on social media to the rainbow colors um i think you had some you had some rant about this you wanted to get off about how great it is so let's uh i want to hear from you about what what you think about this (laughs) phenomenon yeah you know i love it you know i love the performative gestures from corporations no the the military contractors getting in on it is so funny. And I've, you know, having lived in D.C. for coming up on a decade now, been to Pride here many, many times. And it's just like a who's who of just fucking evildoers in the floats. I mean, you'll get like the community organizations. You'll get like the Gay Kickball League. You'll get the Gay Men's Chorus. You'll get like queer community groups, which is great. And then you'll have like Capital One's float, J.P. Morgan's float, Amazon, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Northrop Grumman, and it's just like, it's yeah, it's like kind of just kind of just a, a rogues gallery of just shitheads and in evil entities that make the world immeasurably worse, um, and that now extends to you know Raytheon and Lados, who are two of the biggest defense contractors, um, changing their profile pictures to Pride themed. And, you know, ultimately, what, what what do these entities do? You know, they, they'll arm repressive regimes around the world if, if it made them a buck. They'll provide service, technology, insights, whatever, to, you know, the Saudis, to other repressive uh, uh, governments, regimes, despots, 
everywhere if if they if they could profit off of it and their solidarity their um commitment to their backing of whatever the lgbtqia plus community begins and ends with that fucking profile picture because as uh chad legume of popular info and um progressive shopper i think is the other group worked together to kind of pour over the data and found that all these companies most of these big companies that are pushing out this bullshit these these the, the pride profile pictures are sh- still shoveling money to anti lgbtqia plus republican legislators so it's it just it's a sign of similar to how all these companies rushed to put out black lives matter statements after george floyd was killed by police um, but never did anything else and certainly you know would never withdraw donations to corporate friendly republicans who oppose uh, uh racial equity yeah, or police they, unions themselves like direct direct contributions yeah, to them exactly uh same thing applies here i mean it's just they're not they have no commitment it's all performative and it shows just how safe it is to publicly associate with that cause without any material backing or commitment to it well, it kind of reminds me about the the discourse that we saw a couple of weeks back about that that CIA ad, the woke CIA ad, um, and how it creates this very bizarre kind of uh, argument that some of these people that are that are kind of obsessed with this kind of woke ideology, um, and they use this as an example, you know, the CIA going woke or like Raytheon going woke. They use that as an example of like how these social justice issues have gone mainstream. And it's basically by supporting these issues, you're basically supporting, you're supporting these evil institutions like the CIA or like the weapons manufacturing uh, industry. And, and it's really bizarre because I've seen some people that I, I at one point really kind of liked and respected and, and thought were really uh, smart making this kind of argument and kind of just glossing over the fact that it's not the fact that, you know, these social justice causes are really important or anything material is changing. Uh, but the fact that these evil entities like, uh, like the CIA, like the, you know, like Raytheon, like uh, these, these big banks that destroy people's lives. I mean, they see like it's, it's to their benefit to pretend to care about these issues. Um, and they'll kind of make these very meager efforts to appear that they, that they support these causes while actually altering nothing about the actual like reality of society in which a lot of these social justice uh, issues are still as important as ever. Um, and for some reason, a lot of people kind of use this as an example of like, how, oh, it's it's mainstream to, to like this stuff. And if you if you really spend time talking about, you know, racial justice or or LGBTQIA rights, um, then it's you know, it's it's somehow a sign that you're now supporting this this corporate agenda. But, you know, it, it's not a sign that that these these arguments or these fights for for these social justice causes are somehow pointless or counterproductive. Uh, in fact, they're, they're just as uh, they're just as important as ever, because, as you pointed out, nothing about society has changed in, in any meaningful way, except there's this kind of bland corporate acceptance of these issues. It's weird how people don't seem to grasp this. Yeah, I think so. It's. A- I do want to compartmentalize and separate kind of like the broader anti-woke characters from like general recoiling. And I think a good healthy recoiling at inherently evil entities co-opting this language versus people who are just natural, just upset with it because they don't support it overall. I'm not saying you're doing that, but like there are fringe, you know, characters and, whatever who even in some cases purport to be on the left who are just have so much animosity toward it it does strike me as just absolutely bigoted um so 
I think you could separate those two, and I know our listeners are, are smart enough to parse those, but sometimes it does get a little murky, and people will use one to conflate with the other and, and just kind of undercut all leftist sentiment on this issue. On the corporate front, this really popularized under and during the Obama years. Like That was a measure of progress in society at large. A, a representation at, at the corporate level uh, for members of the LGBTQIA plus community and career advancement, professional advancement, and sometimes like symbolic or even tokenizing positions were used as metrics of success and collective societal advancement. All the while, like all while, like states were still like openly discriminating against um, that community and members of that community, uh, different identities, different uh, statuses. Um, so I, I, it is it is it is completely hollow. And, and corporate America really forwarded this. Progressive, not de- some progressives, but a lot of Democrats latched onto it as a sign that we the collectively we're moving in the right direction, when it does ultimately nothing, and it also it just ultimately serves as kind of like a, a d- distraction from what corporate some of these corporations were actually doing. You're just kind of paper over papering over uh, how how predatory they are, how malicious they are, how evil they are. So it's good, and you obviously you don't want people to be in a situation where they are discriminated against. In, in employment because of their identity, uh, but also it does not make up for you know <laughs> for problems that existed before and, and now after. It is not a collective measure of success, and until we beat back these anti-trans laws across the country, until we make it so nobody can be fired for their identity anywhere in the country, uh, we have a lot of work to do, and Capital One or uh, Wells Fargo or Raytheon having a pride profile picture is not getting us anywhere closer to that. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what I'm pointing out, too, is that I think for a certain sort of subsect of people, you have this idea that like, oh, you know, fighting for trans rights is cringe because now these big corporations are saying that they support these things. Meanwhile, there is this very legitimate push to like erase trans people, to, to uh, you know, legally define them out of existence, to pass these really strict laws uh, targeting trans people deliberately. Um, and then you have people that have kind of decided that because these these corporations have kind of vaguely decided to support this, that it's somehow uh, unimportant or it's somehow like this fight is already over. Um, and this is, you know, in the meantime, you know, trans people are being deliberately targeted by these like really uh, dangerous laws. No one should be swayed by the idea that, that this has become kind of a, acceptable on a corporate level to support these issues that these fights are somehow uh, over that the you know these these things are broadly accepted um there's a whole lot of work to be done like you're saying let's um i i know we, we have a great conversation with max coming up let's bring him on i just wanted to remind people that uh we do have uh, some paywalled episodes that have been coming out lately we had a great episode with dwight from eat the rich uh last week uh so if you missed us if you haven't heard the episode uh, you do have to subscribe over at Substack to get access to that. So I encourage everyone to subscribe over there. Also, we haven't been getting a lot of new reviews lately. I would like to go back to doing a segment to read the reviews. That's always been fun, kind of. Sometimes it's it only counts fun. if you get our names right. So that's just, right. It only counts to, to be clear. Yeah, that's exactly right. So please leave a review as well if you haven't if you haven't left a review already. That's always very helpful. It helps people discover the show. We always enjoy reading the reviews on the show. And uh, let's bring on Max Moran now from the Revolving Door Project. You're really going to enjoy the conversation we had with Max, and he's going to be joining the show right after this.
now we're joined by Max Moran. And Max is the research director for the personnel team at the Revolving Door Project. And I hope you caught all of that because that was a mouthful for me. Max, thank you so much for joining us. We're glad you're here. Glad to be here. Thank you for getting my long and overly complicated title right. <laughs> well, that was a short, that was the abridged version, actually. It is, so. technically, yes. <laughs> Max, we start all of these conversations with the same question. It is a, it is a, it is a vital one. Uh, we want to mm. know who we're dealing with. And if you slip up, it's kind of fucking game over. You're out of here. Okay. Max, are you a gamer? I am indeed a gamer. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Good answer. What do you, what do you game on? Uh, I'm actually sitting uh, in front of my, my Switch setup that I have right now, but I've been uh, replaying one of the old Fire Emblem games on the Wii at the moment, which I'm having a very good time with. Okay. Nice. Nice. Have you been doing any interesting gaming lately, Jordan, or uh, anything different going on? Switching it um, up at all, or no? It's mostly just. Um, well, I, I I I've been working slowly through Resident Evil Seven, and now this is kind of pathetic, but it's been making me dizzy for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> so I can only play it in small increments. But other than that, it's Fortnite, it's Magic: The Gathering, only only the two games that matter. Maybe it's that Cuban headache microwave gun they've been you getting you is? now. I know. <laughs> that very <laughs> real thing outside that my apartment. It's yeah. Definitely it's, very it's much can't a real be stopped. thing. The Cuban uh, Iranian microwave headache gun. Jordan, the latest victim. Very, very tragic, upsetting stuff. <laughs> and it only uh, happens the... when you're playing Resident Evil Village. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, not even Village. It's just Seven. It's Biohazard. Oh, I that's wanted. Even to, worse. I wanted to finish Biohazard uh, to play Village and have that kind of context, but it, you know, it's not working out for me. I'm getting old. I've okay. got gamer eyes. Old gamer eyes. Damn. Well, pairs up. That's unfortunate. Can we get an F going in the chat? Except that there's only uh, only the two of us in this, in this chat an, right now. Can you get an F going in our iTunes uh, Apple uh, Podcasts comments, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. Uh, so you guys at the Revol Revolving Door Project, you have been tracking uh, the people coming and going uh, in, in the White House and the Biden administration at large. You've been keeping an eye on lobbyist influence and special interest group influence in the administration, ultimately with, I think, probably the best intent, not just just as some, you know, bad faith readings might be to thwart the Biden agenda, but ultimately just to make sure that this is a government that is that is representative of the popular will, the body politic and, and people instead of special interests. Uh, so you guys have been tracking this stuff pretty extensively, and I think it's it's been super, super resourceful. Uh, you guys released a hundred day report card recently. Could you give us an overview of, of your hundred day grading for for biden uh and what are what are some bright spots and and what are some noticeable uh failures yeah yeah um it's interesting because uh i feel like some of our um assessment might have even changed in part a little bit since uh we released that report card at the 100 days mark but i think that like the overall thrust of it still stands um our basic takeaway is, uh, so Revolving Door Project focuses, as you mentioned, largely on uh, the personnel who are appointed to the different uh, agencies and departments uh, across the executive branch. We think that there is uh, a lot of really necessary and important uh, progressive energy and advocacy around uh, passing big legislative packages, but not as much on how those packages actually get implemented and that there's an incredible amount of power that uh, lies in 
uh, how the federal bureaucracy actually functions and actually operates. Um, so he wrote this 100-day report card to uh, basically assess... Um, Okay, across some of the major uh, industries that make up the American economy, and especially um, industries that are largely associated with uh, high dollar donations and lobbying and so on of the Democratic Party, um, how many of them have been able to really directly influence the agencies that regulate them, that oversee them, that are you know supposed to uh, prosecute them when they break the law, as they frequently do? Um, so uh, our overall assessment of the Biden administration's uh, job on this is basically uh, he's exceeded expectations, but those expectations were too low, uh, basically. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. we, we essentially write that uh, he's probably the best president of any of our lifetimes in terms of resisting corporate influence. It's just that the presidents of our lifetimes have overwhelmingly been, I mean, they have been the presidents of the neoliberal era. They've been the presidents of an era in which uh, business interests are seen as the ultimate public good. And uh, there perhaps isn't even, in, the, in this view at least, like a contradiction between uh, coming out of an industry that you are then going into regular that you're then going into oversee. Yeah, um, the bar is basically on the floor. Precisely. The bar is below the floor. It's uh, it's the Mariana <laughs> Trench. Um, so while Biden has uh, appointed a good number of folks, especially on the domestic end of things, uh, to roles like the, at the Federal Trade Commission and uh, at some of the executive departments, um, you know, he's appointing actually independent, like, you know, thoughtful people. A lot of them are sort of trying to, like, you know, walk this narrow tightrope uh, between uh, the progressive base of the party and um, and sort of like the, the corporate donor wing, people who would be technically acceptable to both of them or uh, like, you know, I'll give the progressives one and then I'll give the corporatists one, that kind of a thing. Um, and so we think that our overall grade of, of his administration is basically a B minus as far as that goes. Uh, you know, it's passing. There is definitely room for improvement. Um, but it does reflect that, uh, you know, the progressive base has uh, become an actual organized, you know, political force within the Democratic Party. It's far from uh, total control of the Democratic Party. But like, you know, it's a it's a force that can't just be laughed out of the room, which was very much the case when Barack Obama was making these decisions certainly when Bill Clinton was making all of these kinds of decisions. Um, so we're, they so like pretty, at least have to pay lip service to some of this stuff, like at the bare minimum. Exactly. Like, you know, you uh, there has to be someone within the administration uh, who is gauging what the lefties think about things. Ronald Klein has largely served some of that role. Uh, there's also people like Steve Reschetti who are uh, gauging what the donors, gauging uh, what like, you know, the 1% are thinking about your decisions. And uh, a lot of Biden's work and a lot of sort of Biden's entire career as a politician has been about trying to find whatever the exact middle of the Democratic Party is and just sort of plant his flag there. Like, you know, he is always governed as a centrist, always governed, always like, you know, planted his flag there. But that's just because, like, he's not especially ideological as a person. He just finds whatever he thinks is the safest political stance to uh, to sort of squat on, and then he just squats on that. Um, and, like, you know, that exact middle of the Democratic Party has shifted dramatically to the left uh, over the course of the last 10 years or so. 
Um, so he has to at least pay some lip service, at least sort of like, you know, pay attention to what people significantly to his left are thinking, uh, even if like, you know, he's not going to grant them full service and everything. So that's what I'd say is sort of the takeaway in terms of domestic politics and, and domestic appointments. Uh, foreign policy is a very different story. Foreign policy is definitely where we give him uh, our lowest marks uh, as, an, as an organization. Revolving Door Project isn't like deeply focused on, on foreign policy work, but like of the stuff that we do do work on, especially the military industrial complex, um, it's absolutely just been business as usual. Um, it's absolutely uh, been full of people from like the Center for New American Security, this uh, very, you know, center right wing uh, military contractor funded think tank. Um, and, uh, you know, foreign policy is also an area where Biden has uh, personally cared a great deal more throughout his career uh, than on many other domestic issues. Many other domestic issues, he'll basically just sort of to just take marching orders from the party. Foreign policy has always sort of been his baby, and it's also been the area where I'd say we've been most disappointed in him. Um, so that's sort of a quick overview of, uh, of the report card and what our, our general takeaways are. Um, I guess the main thing that I've been kind of interested in trying to figure out in the first kind of hundred days of this Biden administration were whether whether the, the the movers and shakers in the Democratic Party, the sort of establishment types, whether they'd learned the lessons of the the Barack Obama administration, which, um, you know, I think you could argue that they're, you know, to, similarly taking power at a time of this kind of great uh, turmoil, um, you know, the economic crisis and basically their their unwillingness to kind of uh put forward a really big bold agenda and their their obsession with seeming bipartisan and kind of a uh appealing to the sort of like the the centrist newspaper columnists um rather than actually like um you know bailing out average people that were really hurting um you, you know they think the argument is that that really cost them and that led them to them kind of surrendering a lot of the a lot of the upper hand that they had in terms of the 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 you know the political advantages that they had at that time and so that was the kind of thing that i was interested in following with with joe biden was whether they had kind of learned those lessons uh and whether they were going to really like really fight for a really bold agenda um and hopefully avoid that same outcome and i guess that's been the kind of interesting thing following it is that you certainly get the impression, or at least I did, that there are definitely people around Joe Biden and around these sort of like the power centers of the Democratic Party who did understand this uh, and that did want to go forward with that kind of big, bold agenda. But so far, it seems like what Joe Biden has been kind of counting on is to, um, you know, propose a bunch of big, bold things that maybe they wouldn't have done 10 years ago or, uh, you know, really kind of aim aim for these very big progressive uh, pieces of legislation um, and soak up the kind of the newspaper headlines and get the get the props from the sort of establishment press. Um, but I think it seems so far uh, somewhat unwilling to actually do what is necessary to ensure that that big, bold agenda actually turns into legislation that helps, you know, average Americans. Um what's your what's your stance on that i mean is that is that kind of more or less where you're at as well with the in judging the the first uh the first hundred days of the biden administration yeah i think you really hit the nail on the head there um you know it's a it's a little disappointing maybe uh i was too maybe i was a little too like hoping for 
um, some sort of like, you know, big change in that uh, even a few weeks ago, I think that I might have been a little bit more willing to say that, you know, I think that on balance, the voices that are in Biden's ear have learned the lessons of the Obama uh, administration, especially the first uh, several years of it. And I think that your assessment there that, uh, you know, uh, Obama blew an enormous opportunity and um, and that cost him and that cost, uh, you know, the whole country and the whole world uh, dramatically. I mean, I think your assessment of that uh, is dead on. Um, you know, even like, you know, a few weeks ago, I think I might have been a little bit more willing to say like, you know, yeah, there's definitely a, uh, um, a struggle going on within the White House between some more, again, more establishmentarian types uh, and more and people who've really sort of learned the lessons and are willing to, you know, take big risks in order to, uh, well, maybe not take big risks as much as just pursue actual things um, in order to improve people's lives. Um, I think that what we're seeing right now with the infrastructure bill, uh, like, you know, the big bill that sort of got people thinking or got at least a little bit of a narrative out there that um, uh, that Biden was willing to buck old trends was, of course, the COVID relief bill, um, where I think the politics of it in terms of like, you know, winning votes, both basically just winning over the Democratic Party um, uh, were a lot more favorable toward direct action. Um, I think that with his big infrastructure bill, you're seeing him really fall into and stumble into a lot of the exact same traps that, uh, and a lot of the same tricks that uh, um, that Obama really walked into. Um, this obsession with, uh, you know, trying to make it a bill that will get a Republican vote. Uh, like, you know, it, it's a little bit different in Biden's case just because he doesn't have a filibuster-proof majority, but he can't just kill the filibuster. And there's been really admirable work to make that more of a political reality. Um, but the people who he's trusted to shepherd that particular bill, the infrastructure bill through Congress, uh, Gina Raimondo, Pete Buttigieg, Steve Reschetti again, um, are very much from, I mean, obviously from that more corporatist wing of the party. You know, I mean, Buttigieg is Buttigieg. I don't think I need to tell you or any of your listeners about him. Um, he's cool. We're all big fans here. Oh, yep. yeah, de definitely mm -hmm. big people. Buttigieg bros. Buddha bros. Yep. That's it. Yes, Buddha bros. <laughs> Um, yeah, so there's a, you know, there's him, Gina Raimondo, who basically like pioneered, uh, you know, being a Democrat who sells your state's pension fund out to Wall Street um, and then, uh, you know, blames workers when they can't access like, you know, basic retirement security. Uh, she like her rap sheet as governor of Rhode Island is extraordinary. Uh, some of her techniques were later taught by the Koch brothers. Um, and uh, and then you have Steve Reschetti, who's uh, who you know cut his teeth as a corporate lobbyist himself. His brother uh, is still a corporate lobbyist at the firm which they co-founded together. Uh, his brother represents Big Pharma and uh, and Amazon among other clients. Um, and these are sort of the voices who Biden has been turning to to try to shepherd this bill through. Uh, it is falling apart, uh, you know, sort of inevitably because they are trying to pretend or at least operate as if uh, it is possible to, um, you know, win a Republican vote and also as if winning a Republican vote is more important than actually helping people. I don't think that either of those assumptions are true. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, again, there's an enormous amount more that, uh, you know, um, Biden and uh, these cabinet secretaries 
uh, can do within their own existing power that they haven't, uh, just in order to improve people's lives. Um, and that should sort of speak to where their personal priorities lie, and then that trickles into their marching orders and their interpretations of those marching orders uh, when lobbying Congress. Uh, I think, yeah, Rob, you kind of set it up, and that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And you touched on it, Max, on the bipartisan commitment or this 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 lofty and unrealistic, in my opinion, aspiration to have bipartisan legislation. And we're now seeing this right now. Today on Monday, or sorry, Tuesday, there is a uh, there is a story in Politico uh, pushing, uh, talking about Biden's push to make the infrastructure bill bipartisan. That's not going to happen. There's just no there's no scenario in which they work with you going into an election year on a well, you big mean, I, I was on my understanding was like that, that when the adults are in charge, what you do is you negotiate with yourself <laughs> before <laughs> even sitting down with the with right, negotiating baby. partners. All right, look, we've thought about just, it. Yeah, slash it in half <laughs> right before yeah, you even start. That's the we've way We've compromised on our end already. Now your turn. And Republicans <laughs> are just going to give you the finger. Like how one of these days that's this is going to work, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. sure. Yeah. It's just like Lucy with the football. Like every yeah. single time they do it and it never it never happens like they will they like you saw what they did with the supreme court um just the entire time they blocked garland until obama's time ran out and then just rammed three justices through the last of which amy coney barrett doing the exact same thing they moaned when obama tried to do it with garland they they stand for nothing all they want to do is win and act their agenda and get their way like just just so be it just do it infrastructure is popular you do it you're popular like that people will notice the improvements it's it's there is a tangible material impact on communities when you make these kinds of investments so stop stop sitting on your hands just do it yourself and this is why people voted for the Democratic Party in this election cycle. Right. They voted specifically so they would do do good mm-hmm. things and do positive things that would help mm-hmm. their lives, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's like um, uh, you were talking about like uh, um, trying to appeal to centrist pundits and shit. Well, uh, you know, here's an example. that um, Ezra Klein, of all people, uh, reported that um, basically like an unnamed source of his within uh, the White House was uh, telling him that they're, they're a modus operandi within the White House, according to this unnamed source, uh, is basically we have to help the shit out of people, to th- that person's words, uh, or this country is going to elect Trump or another Trump again in 2024. I completely wholeheartedly agree with that. You need to help yeah. the shit out of people. You need to like show people that government can be a force to actually improve your life, uh, or we will have uh, either Trump again or a more organized fascist in his place. Um, you know... Uh, and so it's like, why aren't you doing that then? Uh, you know, you sort of started out haltingly on this on this right path towards it. You had this really good uh, CARES Act. Um, you know, the uh, um, the decision to open source COVID nineteen vaccines. I mean, we got to see uh, the specifics of how that plays out uh, at the WTO and so on. But that is that is transformational. If and how that works out, like you know, that is going to save millions of people's lives. That's incredible. Um, you know, uh, but again, you have to be doing things in order right now to improve people's lives, to get people to address all of these interlinking, you know, horrific crises that we're facing. Um, and the thing is that, like, again, they have the tools to do this. They can, you know, cancel student debts uh, with just a few signatures from the uh, Secretary of Education and the President. They can, um, you know, appoint actual strong figures to the Justice Department. You mentioned Merrick Garland, who's been uh, probably the most disappointing of the domestic side 
uh, um, appointees. He's basically trying to run the DOJ as business as usual when, like, you know, we just had a fascist in office. Um, and, uh, you know, there are enormous amounts that, like, you know, even if they don't get Congress, and they, and they should fight to get good things through Congress, they should absolutely kill the filibuster. It's horrific that we haven't. Um, but even if they couldn't, the point is, and this is something which we drive home, we try to drive home all the time, is that there's an enormous amount that they can do every day to improve people's lives and then to tell people, hey, I did this thing for you. Uh, postal banking is a great example. Um, and, uh, you know, the refusal to do so should speak to uh, someone's political priorities. Uh, and it should also, like, you know, be a an area in which people are, like, you know, looking at and are criticizing this administration. Because, uh, again, those are areas where it is truly just people's, you know, unwillingness to act that is standing in the way of acting. Um, and that's, you know, that's why we focus on the executive branch so much. You mentioned um, Ezra Klein, and it's one thing, one kind of funny phenomenon that I'm noticing that that feels different uh, this time from from where things were 10 years ago, is that you are seeing some very prominent sort of liberal uh, media types, people who are very close to the Democratic Party establishment, people who, as long as I've been paying attention to this, have been bending over backwards to make excuses for the Democratic Party and why they can't do stuff, and to always kind of manage expectations downward. And you see even some of these types are starting to say, like, uh, okay, uh, what's mm -hmm. going on here? Mm -hmm. uh, this seems kind of, like, alarming yep. that they're not doing all these things that they said they were going to do. What's going on with that? And it's just, it's kind of amusing to me. I mean, it must be terrifying for I mean, most Americans, but it is kind of amusing that it's like, well, a lot of dumb shitheads online, like me, have been pointing this out <laughs> quite a while that that like this is what the democratic party is all about yep. and these folks have made every single excuse and they've always they've always had to reason for why things couldn't happen and there's always a, you know just vote you just got to vote vote harder next time that kind of thing and you see even some of these types starting to sort of just get very nervous about uh the coming election cycle and the fact that they're heading uh, ostensibly for a huge disaster yeah i mean you know look it's uh <laughs> It's insane that we ever got to this point, uh, just like sort of in the history of the world where, um, like, you know, the dominance of neoliberalism and sort of like, you know, um, I was, I was talking about this with, with a friend of mine the other night, like, you know, I think that a lot of the, um, where, where a lot of that comes from, uh, is, and that hasn't sort of been discussed enough is like, um, people just wanting politics to not be about conflict anymore. People wanting to, um, you know, have a universe where, uh, like, um, if you're a political pundit or someone, then you don't have to like think about hard questions. Um, but like being able to actually think about hard questions and addressing hard problems and, and taking a stance on like, you know, what kind of world you want and what kind of world you're going to, you know, fight for is really what politics is literally all about. It's about the distribution of power. Um, and so like, you know, seeing people sort of wake up and realize that, I mean, I think part of that you can attribute to like, you know, uh, just seeing like, you know, all the awful shit that Donald Trump did and like, you know, uh, realizing that, oh wait, like, you know, there actually are things that can happen uh, if people actually act and, and do stuff and they can be horrible, horrific things. Um, and maybe it's time to start reassessing some priors here. Uh, but no, it is definitely really funny to be seeing, um, a lot of, you know, liberal pundits and, uh, and, you know, New York times opinion section types, um, sort of 
waking up and realizing that like, you know, oh, uh, this could actually get really, really bad and really bad in a way that affects me personally. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, yeah. all of a sudden things, uh, things change dramatically. But like, you know, I mean, look, that's, that's part of the joy of like, you know, being able to say that the emperor has no clothes of being an, an online shithead, as you put it. But I think also just like, you know, <laughs> uh, being someone who calls out bullshit and that's a, uh, that's a noble and proud tradition. Um, so you, you've, compiled like a dossier on some of the across the board from staff and advisors in the white house to ambassadors to departments and bureaus uh one thing i was really interested in would like to get your thoughts on is kind of the the quiet hires in the staff including uh uh friend of the show Nira Tandon, who uh, did not pass, you know, she didn't have the votes for her Senate confirmation for OMB, but has been just uh, appointed anyway. Um, you've been tracking people like that, and also Seth Harris. Uh, can you kind of give, give an overview of the actual, um, I don't want to say human capital, it's kind of like a reductive term, but <laughs> the actual staff of the White House, the people close to Biden, who have these really alarming ties to special interests, corporations, lobbying firms, etc., cetera, uh, that might, you know and likely influence uh, advice that they give to to the president. Yeah, uh, so I mean, the Nira situation, um, you know, speaks to like a, a broader problem, which is like, you know, um, someone who is deemed uh, not worthy to um, to join an administration by Congress is usually just uh, given a title of like special advisor on XYZ topic. And they essentially sort of run that same department in absentia or they handle that same issue portfolio just without the, uh, the technical official title. Um, that happened with Obama, uh, with a guy named Antonio Weiss, who is a, a Wall Street type, uh, didn't get, uh, I think it's the third most powerful job at Treasury and was made a uh, special advisor uh, and basically just just took over the same job, just with a slightly different title. Um, so, uh, you know, um, with Nira and uh, with Seth Harris and so on, you have these figures uh, who, you know, come out of this corporatist wing, who come out, who essentially are there in order to do favors for uh, whoever they're hoping to have hire them once they once they get out, uh, hire them in like either a direct lobbying job or more often like as a, a senior executive of some sort, but essentially a shadow lobbyist. Um, Harris in particular uh, is basically sort of like the... Uh, the the mind behind Prop 22, the mind behind um, uh, the uh, the bills, which you know first in California, and now you're seeing it in other states, um, to uh, basically strip away any hope of uh, gig economy workers, of Uber and Lyft drivers, and so on, uh, being able to you know enjoy the rights of being an actual worker. Uh, Seth Harris essentially in 2015 uh, wrote a policy paper where he says uh, gig economy workers are fundamentally different from um, independent contractors or full workers, and so we need a new third category of worker in order to describe them. This is basically the same language that Prop 22 has, uh, in which they grant uh, workers um, the right to form a union, but not the right to any sort of things like unemployment insurance, any sort of benefits, any sort of uh, access to like you know the privileges and like you know just the decency and respect of being a full worker. Um, you're seeing now uh, in New York bills and, and proposals to. To like you know basically grant drivers the ability to form a union but not to have that union you know like go on strike uh or you know do anything to actually pressure the 
the organization you, like have this be called a union but it's basically just like a club of people who happen to work for the same employer um you know seth harris was one of the main minds behind uh this sort of positioning um which is now being adopted as a way to uh to strip uh nascent worker power um from gig economy workers uh so he was sort of positioned to be the next labor secretary in a democratic administration he he was the acting labor secretary for i think about a year uh under obama um I think in part uh, because, you know, the politics today of appointing um, the architect of Prop 22 as your labor secretary uh, are not what they would have been in 2015 or 2016. Um, he doesn't get nominated for that job. He does get a job as a like basically senior advisor on labor issues uh, to Joe Biden. Um, I think that Harris himself is sort of trying to position himself as sort of like an intermediary between like, you know, the labor movement between unions uh, and employer side firms, uh, considering that he worked for an employer side firm. He worked for like a union busting firm um, in uh, in the years uh, in between um, the Obama and the Biden administrations. Um, this, again, should speak to his priorities, should speak to the type of advice that he's going to be giving to Biden. Um, the thing is that, like, I think that Biden sees himself very much uh, as a, a blue collar sort of person, uh, as someone who cares deeply about the labor movement. Um, and uh, Marty Walsh, who uh, who has become the actual Secretary of Labor, has proven pretty resilient and is actually pushing pu uh, pushing forward with the actual powers of the Labor Department um, to basically say, yeah, we're not going to actually do any of this bullshit that uh, Uber and Lyft and so on want us to. Uh, we are going to fight as hard as we can to get full uh, worker classification for gig economy workers. So you have a little bit of an internecine uh, White House power struggle there. I think that uh, Walsh and um, uh, and his allies are definitely on the winning side of that at the moment. Um, I think that like you know Seth Harris is sort of trying to lay low, keep quiet, sort of bide his time kind of thing. Um, you know, we got to see what plays out as far as that goes. But like the broader trend there of um, someone who uh, is deemed too toxic to actually, you know, get the really powerful job instead of getting a job that where they're the senior advisor to the person who, um, you know, actually has the position. And so essentially they if they play their cards right and if they're an effective operator, they end up being the person who pulls the strings. Um, that's a really important trend to note and a really important uh, sort of nature of how power plays out uh, within White Houses and sort of within these sorts of fields uh, that it's important to understand. One thing that um, I wanted to uh, I wanted to bring up was, you know, a big part of how Biden like sold himself to people as being the, the one that should, you know, become the, the, the Democratic uh, nominee for president and eventually the president. Uh, is this uh, is this focus on bipartisanship and the fact that he's going to get Republicans on board? You know, I think was this now infamous quote is like the fever is going to break, folks. Yep. The fever is going to break, Jack. Uh, and then the, you know, of course, the Republicans are going to come on board with this agenda. Um, and you've seen this obsession with trying to find Republican votes that we talked about earlier. But I think the kind of funny thing about this is that he can't even get Democrats on board nope. with this agenda. <laughs> and um, you basically have a situation now where you have a couple of centrist. Uh, senators in the democratic party who are basically blocking this whole big progressive bold agenda like we were talking about um and their unwillingness to budge on reforming these senate rules and with the filibuster is like basically 
putting them in a position where they're not going to be able to pass any of the progressive policies they're planning, like the PRO Act and the, the big, you know, the infrastructure bill and all these all these things that if they passed would actually make a huge difference in people's lives and probably make a huge difference in their in the sort of electoral math for the Democratic Party. Um, so that's kind of been an interesting thing about that, because I remember going back to Obama. That was, you know, the main reason for, oh, we can't do we can't do a public option. We can't do Medicare for all because, mm-hmm. of course, Joe Lieberman said no. So, uh, you know, that's why we can't do any of that stuff. And of course, that excuse didn't really matter to a lot of like American voters who then abandoned the Democratic Party in droves. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're heading into a situation uh, with the next couple of election cycles where that, you know, that that excuse. Oh, Joe Manchin said no. Kristen Sinema said no is not really going to cut it. Um, and I guess that's the interesting thing is that uh, Biden so far has basically said nothing about this. He's not he's not put any pressure on Joe Manchin or done anything to kind of like pressure the people in his own party who are blocking his whole agenda. Although I did notice today that finally he actually mentioned this. He actually mentioned that there's people um, within the Democratic Party that are refusing to budge on this and are basically uh, uh, blocking his agenda just as much as, as, uh, as Republicans are. So do you think possibly this is a sign that they're going to start putting pressure on Joe Manchin and the other the other kind of centrist Democrats that are um, refusing to kind of alter the Senate rules to to, to um, actually pass this agenda, like do you think that's a possible a remote possibility here at all? Or you know, I was I was pretty much giving up hope on this, but I did notice that he mentioned it today, so I thought maybe there's a possible chance that they might actually try and you know get Joe Manchin to actually uh, budge on this issue. But I was wondering what you thought. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Um, so the very like galaxy brain, 12 dimensional chess take, uh, that I've seen, like, you know, some like Politico and like, uh, like sort of centrist types, uh, making is that, uh, all of the pushing from the Biden folks on the infrastructure bill, especially to, uh, to get Republican votes when anyone who is like, you know, it was sentient who has paid attention to politics since like you know 2006 knows that there's no way in hell that uh you know a republican will vote for a big uh priority bill uh put forward by a democratic president like so the galaxy brain take is supposedly that like all of that is essentially theater for joe manchin and kirsten cinema um to show them that biden is trying in good faith to get republicans on board but when he inevitably fails uh. then they have like sort of the political space to say okay now that uh i have seen you have tried i shall deign to uh to vote against the filibuster i think a lot of that is giving a lot of people way too much credit uh (laughs) and is assuming that people who very much are not smart but are uh largely driven by just sheer ambition are in fact smart and not driven by sheer ambition um you know i think that uh it's at least possible that we'll see, uh, you know, Biden um, actually uh, fighting to um, get Mansion and Cinema on board with uh, with killing the filibuster. I think that he, I think that he's starting to wake up and recognize that one, he's not personally going to get anything. Uh, passed through this Republican Senate uh, without, like, a reconciliation bill or something like that. Um, And also that, too, like, you know, a lot of his political prospects hang in the balance. He very much wants to run for re-election again in 2024. Uh, He very much liked a lot of the very early narrative that uh, he was being bigger and bolder than Obama. There's a lot of reporting about how he just sort of, like, reveled in that media narrative when that was a thing. Um, 
So I think that you can see him pushing Mansion and Cinema more. I don't know that Mansion and Cinema's own incentives have changed dramatically to a point where they are now going to want to um, uh, go in a where they are now going to want to kill the filibuster. Um, like you know, they're the most powerful two votes in the Senate, and it is fun to be the most powerful two votes in the Senate. They, uh, you know, they have enormous amounts of influence and sway. Um, so again, I would say, like you know, um, if you're Biden, you know, you should be pressuring the two of them. You should also be doing the things that you have within the entire branch of the government that is like largely under your own control. Uh, you should be canceling student debt. Uh, there are ways to extend a form of Medicare for all, or at least a form of uh, providing health insurance uh, to a lot more people just through ex existing executive branch authorities. Um, you should be doing a lot to, uh, there are basically ways of technically changing the poverty floor in order to uh, provide uh, a wider welfare state to people. Um, you know, these are changes that can be done with people who quite literally serve uh, at your pleasure. You can fire one of your uh, cabinet secretaries if they aren't doing the thing that you want them to do. Um, they just have to, again, largely, you know, in some cases, just make a couple of signatures. In other cases, like, you know, propose a couple of rules. Uh, and they can, again, materially improve people's lives. And you can claim direct credit for that. And there's no way that anyone can controvert you on that. You made that happen, Joe Biden. If you were the person who uh, who ordered your, like, you know, cabinet secretaries and who pressured your the people who you appointed in order to take real action on things. Um, so, again, a lot of political wins available to Biden. He It's not as if he's powerless. He's the president of the United States of America. He, uh, even if Congress doesn't want to cooperate with him, he can do a lot to like just make life better for people, take very direct credit for that, and, and then turn around and say, I could do more to improve your life if, you know, if Manchin and Cinema would let me. And that would be a very powerful uh, way of changing, shifting the calculus there. Uh, again, we should hold people responsible and accountable for the things that they choose not to do that are directly within their power. Well, that's the kind of interesting thing about, um, you know, the Earth to Bernie Sanders hypothetical presidency, because, I, I mean, in my view, he was the only kind of candidate that had a kind of vague plan in place to deal with that. It's not like if Bernie had been elected president that he would have just, like, easily passed his whole agenda. Like, he was aware that these roadblocks are mm. there, and he did have a plan to, like, confront the senators that were going to be, he knew were going to be blocking his agenda, you know, holding rallies in their district and, and making it un as uncomfortable for them as possible. Um, like you said, it's the president of the United States. He has a very powerful position. He should be able to sort of throw that weight around and influence people. Um and it's just it's it's very bizarre. I find that he's he's not been kind of willing to do that. I think you had Kamala Harris going to like a rally in in West Virginia a few months ago at the beginning of the at the beginning of the presidency, and then you haven't really seen much movement in, in, towards any of that yep. until today. Um, but that's that's kind of what would have been the interesting thing because I think for a lot of people that's why they supported Bernie because he at least recognized that this was going to be an issue. And he had a plan kind of in place to deal with this. And it seems like it seems like Biden has no such plan. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders dwelled in political reality and he well, he does, I should say, dwell in political reality. Um, and he, you know, has 
very little interest in um, accommodating, like, you know, this very false, uh, certainly false now, if it ever was true, maybe in the 90s, um, narrative of everyone being able to come together and we're going to, like, you know, talk it out and get things done and butta, butta, butta. Like, you know, I mean, well, in the 90s, when that was, like, you know, this dominant strain, the thing which, like, you know, all of our politicians of today are so nostalgic for, um, like, you know, the thing, the thing which they were united behind was basically making everyone's lives worse. Uh, the, the thing which, uh, like, you know, which created this bipartisan consensus, the Washington consensus and so on, the neoliberal consensus, however you want to frame it, um, was a consensus toward, like, you know, we're going to get rich, we're going to get our donors rich, and we're going to make life worse if you aren't rich. Um, that's not a consensus that we should go back to in the first place. That's a consensus that we should be very clear-headed and very, like, you know, uh, straightforward about saying was wrong, was morally atrocious, it was bad then, and it's caused a lot of our problems now. Um, so, like, you know, again, it is important and good to, uh, you know, dwell in political reality, to look hard problems in the face, and to not, like, you know, fall back on, like, you know, this uh, idealized vision of process, this idealized vision of, um, of everyone sitting down and talking it out and working together, which also, by the way, is just deeply undemocratic because there's no uh, space in that formulation for, like, the people giving their input, for, like, you know, uh, like, people who are protesting outside of your office to be treated as legitimate. Um, so, you know, uh, again, um, the president of the United States uh, should be accountable to the people and should be listening to the people and should be doing everything in his quite considerable power to make their lives better. Uh, even if other parts of the government aren't doing that, there is a great amount that the president can do, and we should hold the president accountable when he chooses not to. Well, sounds like you just want Trump to come back. So. <laughs> oh, yes, obviously. <laughs> So we're all in agreement on that. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's like, you know, I mean, look, uh, what's important um, is, I mean, like, you know, in a democracy, we're all supposed to, uh, to have our voices heard, right? Um, we're all supposed to be able to, um, to see the things which we want and to see, uh, like, you know, the government respond to and react to, uh, to the things that we say. Um, and like, you know, one of the big, like, you know, things within DC, one of the big sort of power structures within DC is basically doing everything that you can to, uh, find a reason not to have to listen to someone, to find a reason not to have to, um, uh, take someone seriously or take their, um, like, you know, to, to say this person isn't informed enough to, to have an opinion. Um, I, uh, I was working on a piece recently about, uh, this little obscure thing called the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which no one has ever heard of. Um, it, the, uh, it's called the PCAOB, but apparently it's pronounced the Peekaboo. And, and I guess like if you don't know that it's pronounced Peekaboo, uh, it means that you're out of the loop and you don't know a thing about what you're talking about and no one should take your, uh, your um, opinions or your arguments seriously. Um, and that was like a whole thing which, uh, which you have to sort of like research and, and, and come to be aware of. Um, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which again is this very obscure thing that like, you know, very few people have ever heard of, is the thing that makes sure that Fortune 500 companies aren't lying to the world. It's the thing which prevents another Enron scandal, or at least it's supposed to. Um, and the people who, uh, who run the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board uh, earn 
make vastly more money than the presidents. They make $600,000 or upwards of that a year. Um, and in order to, in the history of this organization, do extraordinarily little. Uh, like, you know, um, the SEC brings more accounting cases than the PCAOB does. Um, and, you know, accounting, like it sounds boring, but uh, it's a field that's like, you know, riddled with fraud and, uh, if it's done, if that fraud reaches a certain point, it can, like you know, contribute to a total economic collapse. So it's a really important, like, little part of the government. Um, again, it keeps a low profile, does everything that it can to uh, prevent people from, like, you know, being able to breach sort of the inner sanctum and provide their opinions on the work that it does. Um, and uh, and if it goes wrong, then it can, like, you know lead to or contribute at least to an economic collapse that affects everybody um that's why this stuff is important that's why this stuff matters there's a lot of work and a lot of power that the government does every day which goes unseen um you know you don't directly feel it but like you know if it goes wrong then everything collapses around you um so you know we think it's important to keep track of that stuff and also we think it's important for you know people to know about and to understand what these little parts of the government are what these little functions are and how they're being corrupted or how they're not being corrupted and how they can do things right now to improve your life more um so that's a big part of what we do well and and something kind of interesting too is that like you know we're talking about the possibility of passing like a bold agenda that actually helps people and and encourages people to vote for the Democratic Party in coming elections. Um, but something else kind of sinister is going on, which is that I you know the a big thing about the filibuster this week that in the conversation was this January 6th commission. They wanted to do this, this commission to, uh, you know, talk about um, the the Capitol riot on January 6th. And, you know, ideally you could view a possible future where Democrats could use that to like hurt the Republican Party and hurt the conservative movement, tie tie like elected officials in the Republican Party to this violent riot that really was a, really did turn off a lot of sort of normies and, mm -hmm. and people that were um, uh, are not, you know, completely uh following this stuff all the time and you've seen that that fail now as well in in and in, in the senate it doesn't look like that's getting um resurrected anytime soon from what i'm seeing and you know this has become a big kind of partisan thing and, and online i don't really want to like get into the weeds on that but that's kind of something that's a little bit scary that's happening which is that you know um with this kind of like very uh overtly anti-democratic turn that the Republican Party has taken, not that they've ever particularly been uh, devoted to these concepts over the last couple of decades, but really becoming very overt about this. Um, and the idea that this kind of, this this uh, riot is kind of just going to go to fade away into the past with no one really held accountable for it. Um, you have Republicans now across the country, Republican governors passing these like ex extremely strict voting uh, voting rights laws and basically setting the stage for a future election that um, can be successfully stolen, unlike the 2020 election, which Trump tried to steal uh, unsuccessfully. Um, and of course, Democrats have an answer for this with their, their big Voting Rights Act, which again, is not really looking like it's going to pass because uh, they, they uh, these centrist members of the Democratic Party in the Senate refuse to budge on these filibuster rules, um, because ironically, because they think it would be anti-democratic. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the kind of scary thing, is it's not just about passing a bold agenda that's going to help people, but it's literally about a possible future where the Republican Party yep. is really kind of making this overt move towards, you know, this very undemocratic, uh, fascist uh, uh, element. And 
you know, there doesn't seem to be any movement to like actually prevent that from happening. And you'd think that if there, if there's anything that's going to motivate these folks to maybe start to reevaluate some of these commitments that they have to bipartisanship uh, and these archaic rules, that would be it. Um, but unfortunately it doesn't seem to be having any kind of effect. And it really does seem like the democratic party is kind of just uh, leaving the door open for a, a very kind of dark turn in uh, American democracy. And I don't, you know, I don't think that's it's alarmist to point that out. And it just, they don't seem to be doing anything about it at the moment. Yeah, I don't think it's alarmist at all. And I'll, I'll even do you one better. Um, uh, earlier this week, uh, Merrick Garland's Justice Department um, uh, tried to get uh, a case dropped, which was uh, a lawsuit against uh, Trump and Bill Barr um, for tear gassing protesters uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests uh, last summer. Um, like, like when when they tear gassed yeah, uh, folks for the photo Lafayette. op, the thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for, for the photo op, yeah. Um, so so like you know, Joe Biden's Justice Department uh, is trying to basically bury that case and is trying to uh, get that dropped um, because they say that it would be far too dangerous to uh, have law enforcement start or to rather to start questioning um, the president's decisions about uh, how to make himself feel safe and that that could set a dangerous precedent. I mean, like are like just are are you kidding me? Like you know, they tear they. they, they tear gassed protesters they 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 attacked people for uh so that the president could like you know walk across the street and take a photo op and it it was it was horrifying um but again like you know what's underlying that what's motivating a decision like that is again a a belief and a want to try to just make everything back to normal as in get everything back to uh like you know the way that these guys remember from from the the 80s and the 90s and so on for garland his first time through the justice department was in the 90s um and to like you know sort of desperately try to avoid having a conversation about like you know the true nature of the republican party uh the true nature of the democratic party as well but also like you know in this particular case like you know this very horrifying like you know authoritarian anti-democratic fascist however you want to personally uh frame it uh turn um it's like you know it's this total inability to sort of like you know really see the danger that we're in really directly and at face value because that would force you to have to again ask yourself some really hard questions to do some really difficult and uh and brave things um as president or uh like you know in congress and so on in order to really try to like you know protect people and to save uh the country from this authoritarian right-wing turn um you know it's completely unacceptable and it's really disturbing and horrifying to see that from um from garland's uh from garland's justice department uh and again that's a person who directly answers to joe biden who joe biden can fire at any time so so max um you know there's there's a lot that people can do to to kind of watch uh get frustrated about spectate but how would you suggest that people who are rightfully uh frustrated angry with outraged by this uh, this revolving door this the, these hires these appointments etc uh that that pose a legitimate threat to uh the public interest uh what could people do to to get involved and how can they support uh the revolving door project uh well you know you can always check us out at uh the revolving door project.org um we're at revolving door dc on twitter um I'd say, uh, like, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, get involved in activist groups, join a union, um, you know, be a good little leftist. Uh, But um, 
as far as like you know directly tackling uh, appointees directly tackling like you know executive branch stuff the good news is that most bureaucrats aren't used to facing public pressure like you know uh if you've ever been to if you've ever protested outside of a politician's office if you've ever, if ever like shouted in a politician's face they're very very used to it it barely phases them they like you know it's hard to get uh a a trained politician to really directly respond to that stuff bureaucrats aren't the same bureaucrats are used to sort of laboring in the shadows are used to sort of like you know um if they're bad bureaucrats uh you know giving handouts and doing awful things without anybody ever knowing their name um so if you like you know inform yourself and again it's it's not that hard it doesn't take that much digging to um to look into how the executive branch affects whatever issue it is that you personally happen to care about because it does touch on every issue um if you can find the people who uh are affecting the things which you care about and are doing negative things on the things that you care about uh those people tend to be a lot more responsive to pressure. We are constantly amazed at how um, how responsive people can be, uh, just because again they're not used to like their name being out in public. They're not used to their life's work being put out on display and having people directly criticize and shame them. Um, if you if there's an issue which uh, you are horrified by, if there's an appointee who you find who's done horrifying things, um, you really can make a lot of change on this issue and through this particular lens um so i would encourage you to inform yourself well thanks so much for joining the uh, for joining the show and breaking this stuff down for us max it was great to talk to you about this thanks for having me pleasure to be you want to just like let everyone know where they can find you uh find your find your stuff online and all that all that all your plugs <laughs> uh yeah i'm um at max moran high uh on twitter uh and again our website is the revolving door project.org that's the revolving door project.org Great. Well, thanks again. And uh, it was a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. Please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com. Find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. And please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot. But please, again, don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban, so please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye.